Well, this morning we continue our way through 1 Corinthians, and as I've already mentioned, we're on the back side of 1 Corinthians chapter 14 in a complicated and challenging chapter of 1 Corinthians, remembering that 1 Corinthians is a book that in which Paul is in the middle of correspondence with these people. Remember, there's multiple letters going back and forth. We believe four letters to the Corinthians. Um, and so there is this back and forth. And the Corinthian church is a church that Paul loves, uh, but that causes him great consternation <laughs> at the same time. And so it's been one issue after another. And so it, it dealing with this uh, potpourri, if you will, of issues uh, in the church. <clears throat> And the issue that Paul is addressing in the text that we're in the middle of here in 1 Corinthians 14 is the issue of spiritual gifts and the use of these gifts within the church, the purpose of the gifts, and how they are to be used as tools, because again, that's what they are. Our word of exhortation last week was from Ephesians chapter 4, in which, in which Paul says to the Ephesian church, and he doesn't go on to a long uh, um uh, exposition about the gifts to the Ephesians, but to the Ephesians, he just mentions it in a in a in part of a broader description about the gift of the Spirit and, and the church as a whole. That the gifts were given to the church for the equipping of the saints for the building up of the church. The gifts of God were given for the equipping of the saints for the building up of the church, by which each member, each joint and ligament, back to the body image now, the body metaphor, which we, we know Paul is dealing with here as well, via 1 Corinthians 12, was that extended metaphor of the body. So again, back to the church in, in Ephesus, the gifts of God were given for the equipping of the church. Equipping for what end? Well, for the building up of the body, so that each joint and ligament might do its part for the sake of a healthy body. So Paul gives us a great understanding there of the fact that these gifts are means to an end. And the end is a healthy body, a healthy church, by which we all take the gifts God has given to us and use them. For we have been equipped so that we might build up the body of the church, that the church might bless its members, but also that the church might bless the world, right? This healthy body, as healthy as it, it is, um, is, is for the health of its members, yes, but this body was also given to me for the sake of the world. And so it is with the church as well. So Paul has been on this little rant in 1 Corinthians 14 specifically, helping them think through the gifts because as the Corinthians tended to do. And we can't be too hard on the Corinthians, as we've said, because we tend to be like them, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament. We tend to get this stuff wrong, right? We tend to get distracted. It seems so obvious when you're preaching through it. It seems so obvious when you take time to reflect on it, but then we go back out into the world and we got to do stuff this week and we're going to have problems hitting us this week and relationship issues and business issues and financial issues and political and cultural issues and and physical issues and and all of a sudden the things we talk about on a sunday the the truths of the scriptures can fade into the background and our default settings can kind of come back into play and our default settings as we confessed several times throughout this book tend to be american because that's 
That's what we are. We're Americans. We, we are very shaped by the American culture. And that's not all bad. A lot of that's just common grace stuff. It's fine. It's just the distinctive ways that we tend to do things. And, that, and that's fine as far as it goes. But it's not fine when our American ways of thinking and doing things start to become the dominant lens through which we view our problems, in which the American culture tends to give us the dominant solutions to our problems and how we fix them and how we handle them and how we manage them. The American culture may have a ton of wisdom on this thing, but it must always be secondary to the scriptural culture, if you will, to what the Bible says we should do about it. That is, we must always judge the American way of doing things by what the Bible says and not the other way around. And this is a problem in many of our churches. All right, It's a very easy thing to do. We tend to start interpreting the Bible through a, and if not American, though it may be just sort of a 21st century spirit of the age lens. That's a very dangerous thing to do. So we have a book like 1 Corinthians because Paul is challenging the Corinthians not to do that in first century Greco-Roman culture. Hey, don't let the way you've always done it, Corinthians, shape your understanding of how things work within the church or within your own spiritual life. I have to help you learn to think differently. I have to help you learn to think Christianly about these things. And so that's what he's doing, and that's what he's doing here in 1 Corinthians 15, specifically about the gifts. Now, the two points, so last week we talked about the first half of this chapter, and this week we're looking at the second half of this chapter, chapter 20, or excuse me, verse 20 through verse 40. And if we can divide this chapter up, remembering that Paul did not write with verses and he did not write with chapter headings, right? He just wrote a letter. So always a little bit, you know, artificial to break it up like this, right? Because the Corinthians would have just heard this read. And that that does change things a little bit when you, because you're hearing everything in the context of the whole thing, whereas we keep breaking it up over time. <clears throat> but if we do break up this chapter, and I think we've done right to do it where we have, the two dominant things that Paul is addressing with the gifts and the two lenses I think that he is giving the church to help them think through their use of the gifts is on the one hand, love, and on the other hand, order. Both of these are at the very heart and nature of who God is. God is love, John says in 1 John 4. And therefore, any use of the gifts that God gives to his church that is not driven and governed by love cannot be of God. It's not from God and it does not glorify God. If we use the gifts of God in a way that is not loving and edifying. So again, let's just think back for a second about last week. If we use the gifts in such a way that it tears down, brothers and sisters, if we use the gifts in such a way that they elevate me, and he uses the idea of tongues there, where I'm speaking in languages that nobody knows, but somehow in my soul I'm being edified, but the body of Christ is not being edified, and we think of church as just a gathering together of a bunch of individuals who are pursuing God individually, but we all just kind of gather together in the same room. Well, that's not love. 
That, that's, not, that's not what corporate worship is about. Now, by all means, and Paul, as we talked about, does not dismiss individual relationship with God. He doesn't even dismiss tongues as perhaps a personal experience that even is beyond your understanding in communion with God. He does not dismiss that. But he says it's just not appropriate for this where we gather together because it's, it's, it's not governed by love. It, it's not edifying the brothers and sisters within the church. And that's not why the gifts were given. Better, he says, to prophesy where the word of God can be spoken and heard and thought through and bless others. So better to do that. Again, not that the use of tongues, whatever he means by it, and we can, I confessed last week that even for me, there's a lack of clarity of exactly what Paul was experiencing in the first century. Was it like what we see in many of our uh, Pentecostal churches? Perhaps it was. I, I don't have a lot of clarity on it, to be honest. But whatever it was, whatever it was, it was not edifying to the body and therefore needed to be tempered in the corporate congregation of God's people because our God is a God of love and therefore this corporate worship must reflect that. So that's what we thought about last week. Now this week, making the same argument, Paul flips the coin over and deals with another aspect of God's character and being that then must shed light on our use of the gifts. And that is God's order. Now here, this the, I, I titled the sermon uh, um, Decently in an Order um, because it's like within PCA circles, it's, it's a, a running kind of joke. You may not find it that funny, but then most Presbyterian PCA jokes aren't that funny, but so, but but within our circles, you know, we all chuckle at Presbyterian, um, you know, over this phrase decently that that this is the Presbyterian's favorite verse in the Bible, you know, that we do if we do anything, if we take any verse seriously, all other verses must be subjugated to this. Um, that let uh, let all things be done decently and in order, and and like you know, you know, geeky Presbyterians are like high fiving each other when we hear when we hear this verse, okay. Um, because we're like, yes, yes, we're, we're, we think things should be decently in order. And so, you know, pipe down in worship. And don't you, you know, I remember the, the old days, you know, when, uh, you know, uh, when James was in here, you know, and James would class. Some of y'all don't know James, but those who do remember him well, you know, and James was a big amener, you know. And I remember the first day James showed up and, uh, and I was preaching and he was pacing around the back, which was unsettling. And, uh, and and uh, so James, if you're listening to this, I love you very much. But um, but I remember that first thing. He's pacing around in the back, and and uh, and I I'm, I'm preaching to him all of a sudden. Amen. You know, and I was like, it's, it was startling. It was startling <laughs> in this church of silence uh, that we were getting amens like that. And then it became something I became familiar with anytime James was around. Now we don't need you all started. Oh, so Bill likes amens, and then we're gonna get you know Charlie. I've heard you every now every now and then. Charlie belts out an amen, and it's and it's very welcome. Is very welcome, um, but uh, but yeah, we we joke as Presbyterians because we tend to be uh, slightly stiff, slightly quiet, uh, but we justify it all <laughs> under this verse. You see, yeah, we're doing it because the Bible commands it uh, to be done decently and in good order. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, for those listening on tape, Charlie just said, "Amen." Um, and uh, so, okay, so Paul is picking up on this idea of doing things in good order. So the thing that was to govern us last week is love. 
let what we do in this congregation be done in love for our brothers and sisters and for their edification. And, and yes, may you be edified that you go and develop a very deep personal relationship with the Lord. But let what we do in here be for corporate edification. Now, in our text today, Paul turns to the issue of order. Because whatever was going on in the Corinthian church, it was disordered. It was like, a, according to Paul, as we read through this passage, a cacophony of voices. Everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, but large percentages of people apparently speaking in tongues that were unintelligible to the congregation, even perhaps to them as individuals. We have people bringing these things together here in down in verse 26. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each one of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, an interpretation. Let all these things be done for edification. It seems that within the corporate congregation of the Corinthians, the disorder kind of reigns in that this, this person wants to sing this. And so maybe they start leading in song or they start uh, asking them to sing this. And this person says, well, I have a word from the Lord. And they stand up and start, you know, quasi-preaching. And, and this person over here starts speaking in tongues. And this person over here says, well, I want to pray. And th the service turns into a disjointed, disordered service. Now, in, in some sense, we have to take into our minds the fact that we're in the first century, that we don't have 2,000 years of order, the, the way we worship here at Affirmation is not just, you know, hmm, let's think, let's think about a new way we can do this. When we have to think through our worship service, the worship service that we have is done thoughtfully and based on a 2,000-year tradition of the Christian church. And we know that within different denominations, there is variation, but the elements of our worship and the structure of our worship service, as Mark uh, referred to it this morning as covenant renewal, is something rooted in a long tradition in the wisdom and order of the church through the ages. The Corinthians did not have that. The Corinthians are first generation. They're pioneers. Paul stops in town, gives them the gospel, and says, okay, I'll check back in with you later. And so no surprise that their services, if we were dropped into them today, We'd be flummoxed, you know, we'd be saying, whoa, what's going on here? They don't have a New Testament. What is a preacher preaching from if only the Old Testament? And so you have even some standing as prophets to make application from the Old Testament and to give the word of the Lord, even in the New Covenant. Whereas today, 2,000 years later, we have an established canon of revelation from God, and we have an order, and we have tradition, and we have structure, history. So again, I, I say that only to be easy on the Corinthians because they're coming to their services trying to do the best they can, but their services are a cacophony of voices and apparent disorder. And in this latter part of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is rebuking them here. And again, he ends with that famous, let all things be done decently and in good order. Why? Because as he says up in verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. God is not a God of confusion. He is a God of order. And therefore, where we see disorder, 
where we see the gifts being used to stir confusion, just like as we said in the first section, where we see the gifts being used not to edify, but to self-aggrandize, where we see the gifts being used to tear down, right? How dare the eye say to the hand, we have no need of you, right? The, the, the body image. When you see that starting to happen, the eye, which is very gifted for seeing, starts using it to lift itself up over other parts of the body. That's a sign of an unhealthy body. That's not what bodies do. And so where we see that, we say, hmm, that doesn't seem like it's of the Spirit of the Lord. And over here, where we see the gifts of God being used to stir confusion, disorder, disorientation, we say, that is not of the Lord, for God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Now, I want us to think here, and, and I chose as our, our Old Testament reading, Psalm 19, because we see in Psalm 19 <clears throat> a celebration by the psalmist of the order of God in the heavens. The heavens which move in their perfect order, right? The, 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 the sun like a bridegroom coming out here and setting over there, and the stars moving in their courses and in their proper places in the sky. And David celebrates this and says that that very order is like music. That very order is singing to us about the nature of God. It's what we often use within our studies of theology. We call it general revelation, that the heavens, you can go out at night and look at the stars, and the stars will teach you, not in some strange astrological way, but the stars will teach you just in their being, just in their order, just in their scope, their size, their majesty. They are like little prophets. They're like little preachers. They're like a choir. This is how the ancients thought. We, we of course, are so we get our heads down so easily into the muck and the mire of our culture and of our age that it's very hard for us anymore to hear what the ancients called the music of the spheres. But back when you didn't have light pollution and when you didn't have the overwhelming distraction of our technological age, when you didn't have an incessant flow of news that unsettles you every day and makes you think like the world is falling apart. The world was pretty bad 2,000 years ago as well. It's just you didn't know everything because you didn't have Twitter. <laughs> and therefore, you didn't know every little bad thing. You didn't know every little downturn in the market. You didn't find out things for years. And you go, then when you get the bad news, you go, really? And you don't know that, that a million bad things have been happening, but you just don't hear. We hear everything. And it, it's, it's really overwhelming. It gets claustrophobic. You know, it, you start to feel like the world is on the brink of falling apart. Well, that's because you know things that in generations people never knew. You just had no idea what was happening on the other side of the world back then. But it was bad. And therefore, we lose the ability to hear the music of the spheres. And it's good for our souls to get away and to shut the phone off and to turn the TV off and turn talk radio off and get away from the light pollution and listen, try to hear again and try to see because, as David says, it's singing to you. It's singing about the glory of God. The heavens, in their order, 
are singing the glory of God. Because God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. He gave them order. He established each star and put it in its place. He established the sun to rule by day and the moon to rule by night. He created the world, as we've talked about many times in this church. He created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, formless, disordered, and empty. And then God said, let there be light. And in saying, let there be light, what God began to do was to undo the disorder that he had allowed. Right? God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. God created the world in such a way that he let us see the disorder, but so that we could see him order it. This is why I believe God creates in six days, because he stretches out the process so that we can observe it. That he is not a God who allows the disorder to remain, but rather takes the disorder and begins to order it. He takes, in fact, day one, two, and three. Day one, he separates light and darkness. On day two, he separates sky and sea. It's like he puts them in their places. Right? He's, he's taking the chaos of, the, of everything being blended in together, and he starts categorizing it, structuring it. Light and darkness, sky and sea, earth and sea. And then he begins to fill them with things in the same order. The sun and moon he puts, and stars he puts in the day and night, and, and you know, fish and birds, and then man and animals and plants. That is the very nature of God. And that is the way the Bible begins, and the way that Moses begins to reveal God to us is in first his work as a God of order. So when we come back now to 1 Corinthians 14, and we zoom now into a church that looks more like the original formlessness and emptiness, when we see a reversion back to disorder, Paul is saying, it can't be. This cannot abide. We, we can't have this because this does not represent the very nature of God. Just like using the gifts in ways that tear down does not represent a God of love, so using the gifts in such a way that just makes a muck and mire of the church is, does not honor a God of order. And that disorder in this text is seen in two particular ways. The first one is the use of tongues as we've been reflecting on it, we don't need to spend too long here because Paul is not essentially giving a text on the use of tongues. He's giving a, a charge on order within the church. That's what this is about. And the issue of tongues seems to be the thing that is, is the, the flashpoint. One way it's being, it's also being manifested in the fact that you're suing each other. Okay, remember, remember back earlier in the book, you're, you're suing each other, you're bringing lawsuits against each other. Okay, well, within the life of the church, that's the same principle, right? That, that you, you have rights and privileges, but those are to be used in love. You have rights and privileges. Yeah, but it's creating disorder. It's, it's the body fighting against itself. That doesn't honor God. 
Or you are eating meat sacrificed to idols, though it's wounding another person's conscience. Okay, you're using your rights and privileges to destroy a brother's conscience. That's not how the body of Christ works. So it's just another issue here is the issue of tongues within the church. And he is saying, he he quotes this passage from Isaiah right there in the beginning where the, uh, the Assyrians came in in their foreign languages and ruled over the people of Israel and started speaking in tongues, Assyrian, that the Israelites could not understand. And that was like an act of judgment against Israel. And Paul's using that to say, Let's not model ourselves after that. In fact, what are we doing even to non-believers? Non-believers will come in our church and they will see the chaos. Right? Uh, Verse 22, Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to the unbelievers. But prophesying is not for the unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there there come in those who are uninformed or unbelievers, they will not, will they not say that you're out of your mind? When they come in and they just hear what appears to be gibberish, and and not only is it, well, it's gibberish to me, but they all seem to understand it. That's like if I walk into a church and people are all speaking a different language, and I'm like, what's going on in here? Oh, but they all understand it. Okay, then I realize that. But not only do I not understand it, you don't understand it either. And there's no one to explain what's going on. Well, then, again, you have misrepresented God, he's saying. They're going to think you're out of your mind. You, you look like every other cult that, that is doing things ecstatically and that seems to bypass the intellect and that's not the order that God desires or that represents his church well. So Paul says, going on from verse 26 and following, therefore, if this is going to be done, it needs to be done in an orderly way. So how is it, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, a teaching, a tongue, a revelation, interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three, each in turn and let one interpret. Okay, so you can see what Paul's doing. His issue is not tongues per se, but there must be an interpretation so that it can edify. And not only that, we're going to do it in order. If somebody's speaking, you wait. This seems like, this seems like basic human etiquette, but apparently within the Corinthian church, that's what, that's what they needed. Even this was rebuked to them because they didn't have basic decency in terms of etiquette. But we know that because at the Lord's Supper, they're getting drunk. Talk about disorder, okay? They're, they're eating all the bread and drinking the wine so that a couple people are sloshed and other people aren't getting anything. Okay, that's disorder within the church. That does, not only is that not love, but it's not orderly. So apparently they need basic etiquette 101. When somebody's speaking, we wait until they're done. You have a hymn idea you want to sing? Okay, present it in an orderly way, please. How shall we sing this song rather than just starting to belt it out or in the middle of service? I want to sing this. You have a hymn or you have a T, you have a word you want to say? Maybe come to the elders beforehand and say, hey, this has been laid on my heart. Is there a way that I can share this, right? He's, He's saying there's ways to do this in orderly and structured ways. It must be done orderly. Only a few of you, there must be an interpreter and so forth, and then things will be done well. For, verse 33, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Now, the second way in which order is to be established is with women in the church. And this is uh, the 
latter part in verse 34, let your women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, this text is a thorny and challenging text itself. And here we see a second way in which there was disorder within the local church. This is a text that when you do read commentators, we were just talking about commentators in, uh, in commentaries in, uh, before we walked out here. And when you read the commentators on this, people are all over the place on this text. Many people question whether this little passage is actually authentic to Paul. There are a significant number of, number of commentators who believe that that little passage is an addition to the text. There are many who do not believe that. I'm just telling you the fights that happen over a text like this. And one of the reasons for this is because earlier within 1 Corinthians itself, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talked about men and women prophesying. That when a man prophesies, he's to do it with his head uncovered. And when a woman prophesies, she's to do it with her head covered. So there in 1 Corinthians 11, it seems like you have women speaking in church. And then here he's saying women are not permitted to speak in church. And so there, obviously, we do not believe that the scriptures contradict themselves or that Paul would contradict himself. And so all kinds of ink is spilled on trying to reconcile these two passages. And I want to say a couple things about it. The first thing I want to say about it is when we read a text like this, it's so grating to our modern sensibilities, right? There were ages in which this would not be grating to the sensibilities, but ours is one one in which even to read these words, it's like just scrapes like nails on a chalkboard. Like, wow, what, what are you talking about? And I want to address that issue, not so much over the issue of women speaking in the church, um, but just over the way we approach the Bible in our modern sensibilities. Forget what the thing is that's being said for a second. Let's use this as an example, and we could talk about this more in Sunday school. I, I think I would like to do that. When we read a text that great, that immediately seems to make us go, ick. When we read something that makes us go, no. When we read something that goes, ouch. <laughs> how do we handle those things? And I'm challenged on this, and we can look at other cases of this. I, I don't not so much interested in the issue of women per se on this, as much as it is if the Bible commands something or if the Bible forbids something that our culture says is good or that our culture says is fine and permissible, where do our instincts tend to go? Is our first instinct, yeah, but the Bible says, and I have to figure out how to rectify that with my culture. Or is my first instinct, how dare the Bible say? And that's a big, a big deal. And I'm saying this because I don't believe that this text is saying women are not allowed to say anything in church. Because you do have the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. Now, whether they should have authority in the church, whether they can be elders, there's other arguments we'd have to go to in the pastoral epistles that would deal with that. But clearly women are not to remain utterly silent within the church. But you say, but Bill, it says right there, let women remain silent. And so I'm going to argue on the side that we need to, we need to work through an interpretation of this text that does allow women to sing, women to pray, women to speak. That I believe something is going on here 
in the Corinthian church where women are speaking in such a manner that is in some sense a cultural problem within Corinth that it is bringing disruption to the church and dishonor to their husbands, to their families, and to the structure that God has established in order for the church and, uh, uh, yeah, for the church and for marriage. Something particular is going on here, and Paul is addressing that specifically. And he's saying maybe, maybe women are standing directly in the service and questioning the prophecy of their husbands or of the pastor or whatever. And Paul is rebuking that and saying, hey, no, no, the, the corporate worship is not the time for that. The time for that is at home. Deal with it within your family. Deal with it in private. But you don't speak and bring a questioning authority within the middle of the church. Perhaps something like that is going on. But I don't believe this text is saying that women literally are not allowed to sing or participate in worship. But clearly we don't believe that. But at the same time, the reason I'm, I'm prefacing that with this business about, but if the Bible did say it, women's issue, whatever the issue is, is it our nature to recoil at what the Bible says? Or is our nature to be chastened by what the Bible says? And in Sunday school, I'll give you a specific example of this that I had with my students and had to work through with them. And we'll, we can address that there. But I want, us, I want to challenge us, especially in a book where Paul is challenging the Corinthians to think Christianly and not Corinthianly. That whether it's an issue of women or whether it's an issue of gifts or whether it's an issue of lawsuits and rights that we have or whether it's an issue of privileges and eating meat or whether it's a this or that, that we, we pray that our instincts would be such that we let the Bible chasten our American sensitivities. Because where we don't do that, whether it's on women's issue in terms of roles within the church or within marriage or anywhere else, when we start to feel like, well, in this day and age, you just can't. When you start doing things like that, the doors of the church fling open to all sorts of false teaching that we have to be very, very careful of. And we're seeing it all over our country. Churches that compromise the teaching of the scripture to maintain the approval of man, to maintain the approval of their culture, to maintain, to, to virtue signal to a society that, that we are hip or we are cutting age or we don't have this problem or that problem. And I just want us to be sensitive to that, whether it's on this issue or any other. But Paul, I believe, to wrap this up, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 is not giving us a long excursus on spiritual gifts. That's not what he's doing here. He's using spiritual gifts to deal with these two bigger issues, love for one another and, 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 and order. And also, neither is he giving us an excursus on the role of women within the church. That's just not what he's doing here. But there's an issue in Corinth with the way that the women are behaving in the church that is cutting against the disorder or cutting against the order that God has established. And the big issue that he is speaking of is order within the church and love for the body. So brothers and sisters, again, in Sunday school, we can speak to some of the specifics as we did last week. But nonetheless, it is good for us to remember these two things, that the worship of Affirmation Church and the functioning of the body here at Affirmation Church are to be governed by these two things, love for the body, love for the church of God, for they are the people of God, and for order as it represents the very nature of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our failings. 
Sometimes our love for decency and order leads to a stifling of the Spirit. But nonetheless, Lord, we pray for ourselves as a church that you would make us people who abound in love, who would see our privileges, our gifts, as means by which we may bless one another and in so doing, honor you. And we pray also that our order itself would be a ministry of blessing. Father, give us a love for you and your character. Fix our eyes upon you that in seeing you, our hearts might be ordered and that our hearts might flow with love as you are love. So bless this church, we pray. Bless our worship and bless our ministry. May all things we say and do honor and glorify you, we pray. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.